We started a brand new series last week called Risen, and I want to invite you to grab your Bible or maybe your iPad or your Android or your iPhone as we study God's Word this morning. We're going to be reading some scriptures, and I also invite you to grab that pen that's maybe right in the seat right in front of you, because there's going to be some things I'm going to invite you to underline and to fill in the blank on. We're going to be talking about the tomb of Jesus. Now, last week we started off with the cross, but today we're going to head towards an empty tomb. By the way, did you uh, hear about the Seattle airport cargo holder who was working with his friends and he was getting some animals? You know, they, they have animals that travel in the back of the plane. He was getting some animals out of the, out of the back of the plane and he was removing some dogs in their, in, their, in their cargo holders and there was one of them that was dead. And he, he asked his friends what he was going to do. He felt so bad that the dog was dead. And so they decided to come up with a plan, and they were going to replace the dog uh, that was dead. Uh, it was a black lab. They felt like they could go to the pound and find another black lab and fix, you know, fix it up. And so when the guy came to the, to the counter to pick up his, his animal, they told him, well, it just got shipped the wrong place. It went to Phoenix. Then come to Seattle. Come back tomorrow. We'll have your dog for you. And that's exactly what happened. The guy came back the next day. They had gone to go find a black lab that was about the same age, looked like about the same kind of dog. And, and the guy showed up, and they said, here's your dog. And he said, that's not my dog. And they said, yes, this is your dog. He's exactly the same size. I mean, this is who he is. And they said, the guy said, that's not my dog. They said, how do you know he's not your dog? He said, my dog died. I was having him shipped back to be buried. <laughs> now, wouldn't you be surprised... See, why would you be surprised? Because dead things normally don't come back to life, right? 2,000 years ago, something happened that was most important, um, absolutely the most important moment in history for us as humans, the most important moment in history, and something that was dead came back to life. And they call him the Messiah, and today we're going to study about that moment in time when it happened. The Bible says this in Luke chapter 24. He is not here. He has risen. Those were the words of angels to those first followers who showed up to try to to take care of the dead body. He is not here. He has risen. That is the single greatest news that's ever hit our planet. He is not here. He is risen. It's the most important thing. As a matter of fact, Jesus in this moment is so important that he literally splits time for us. And everything that was before Jesus, we call B.C., right? Before Christ. Everything after Jesus, we call Anno Domini, A.D. It is so important, his life. And so we're going to study what is the truth here. What is the truth about the angel saying, he is not here, he has risen. When the followers went to the tomb, read this story with me from, from the Gospel of John, chapter 20. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked, for fear. I want you to notice that. Where are the disciples? That they are, They're hiding and they're fearful, right? With the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. You know, in that moment for them, that must have not only been incredibly eye-opening, but all of a sudden it was a major shift for them. Now they had reason to live where they were fearful and hopeless. 
Now they had a, a reason and a purpose to move forward with their lives. Now they had hope in what comes after their last breath on planet Earth. They had hope of a life that was to come. And I just wonder for the folks who were there in that moment, for Peter, for example, who had betrayed Jesus, and all of a sudden Jesus is there in his midst, and Jesus says, peace be with you. I wonder how radically that moment was as a change moment in his heart when he saw him die, and then the Bible says they saw him come back to life. What would it have been like for Mary Magdalene or Mary the mother of Jesus to see him die and now come back to life? What would it have been like for Thomas, get this picture, to actually place his finger inside the holes inside Jesus' hands and his feet and inside of his body? Can you imagine what it would have been like for him? Now, interestingly enough, in this, in this scripture, it's, it's not so important about where Jesus wasn't. Oh, he wasn't in the tomb, right? What's important is where Jesus was. He was with them in body saying, hey, touch me, feel me, I'm alive. This is good news. Now, here's the cool thing. The question for us today is, okay, it's good news, but is it true news? That's what I want to talk with you about today. Can we really trust the resurrection account? Is it really true news? You see that big question right in the middle of your outline today. That's the question I'm going to grapple with you today on. What is the evidence of the resurrection? Now, the chapter that I was reading to you last week that we started off this series on, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, remember I called it the resurrection chapter? Just two chapters earlier, 1 Corinthians 13, you have the love chapter, right? Two chapters later, 1 Corinthians 15, we have the resurrection chapter. It talks all about the resurrection. And here's one of the things it says there. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. What Paul was saying in that moment to the, to the church in Corinth was, listen, everything rises or falls when it comes to Christianity on the truth of the resurrection. So the question is, Okay, that's good news if he came back to life, but, the, but is it true news? Can we really, really trust it? Today I'm going to talk with you about the evidences of the resurrection. And we're going to ask the question, what is the evidence that he might really have come back to life? But before we get there, I want to introduce you to a guy. This is uh, Sir Lionel Lucku. He actually is in the Guinness Book of World Records. He's the most successful lawyer in history. He actually was um, invited, knighted twice by Queen Elizabeth and invited to be one of her own personal counselors as she was leading the country of England. Now, this guy right here had 254 consecutive murder acquittals. Now, think about that for a minute. 254 times he was able to get a murder acquittal when he took the case, the most successful lawyer in history. When he was 60 years of age... Somebody came up to him as the most successful lawyer in history and, and challenged him to put the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus to a trial in his own heart. And so he set out to prove Christianity was not true, especially the resurrection. He began to study the evidence just as he would in a regular murder trial because he was a murder lawyer. And he began to study all the different evidence that was there, compile the evidence, and at 64 years of age, gave his life to Jesus Christ after he looked at the evidence. Uh, it's amazing, and this is what he said. I, I thought I'd share this quote with you. I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming 
that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. That's the Guinness, uh, the, the world record holder, Guinness Book of World Records holder for the most successful lawyer in history. And he gave his life to Christ at a much older age after he examined the evidence. If it's okay with you today, what I want to do is, I am no lawyer, okay, I know that, right? But I want to examine with you the kind of evidence that this guy and many other people have examined across the years to ask themselves, okay, it might be really good news that he came back to life, but the question is, is it true news? I'm going to walk through four pieces of evidence with you, and I'm going to invite you to fill them in the blank, okay? And so the first one is simply this, the evidence of the empty tomb. The evidence of the empty tomb. And I want to start here because to me, this is the big one. Uh, We got some other big pieces of evidence, but for me, I've been to the tomb, and his body wasn't there, okay? That's pretty cool, right? I've been there multiple times now over in Israel, and his body wasn't there. Interestingly enough, every other world religious leader, you want to go find, you can find their tomb, but you can't find his. His body wasn't there. The Bible says in Luke 24, he is not here, he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the son of man must be delivered over into the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. When I was 24, 22 years old, I was a senior in college, and I was a senior-level Bible student. I was both a music major and a Bible major, and I took some senior-level courses, and one of them was called Systematic Theology, 22-year-old taking Systematic Theology. Now, by the way, Systematic Theology is probably the toughest class I've ever taken in my life, much tougher than physics and chemistry, believe it or not. Systematic Theology is taking all of these evidences and putting them together and figuring out exactly how and what you believe about God about anything. If it has to do with evil and suffering in the world, what does it mean about goodness and justice? It's very complex. But we began the course with the resurrection. My professor said, if we can't prove the resurrection is true, if we can't look at the evidence there, then everything else falls apart. So let's start with the most important thing. And what I'm going to share with you in the next few minutes, as a 22-year-old, I sat in that class, I learned at that time. I learned the different objections that were there about the empty tomb. I examined them, just like I'm going to invite you to examine today. And nobody had ever presented them to me. I just had never taken time to study. Maybe you've never taken time to study, or maybe you've never examined them. But today, I'm going to invite you to kind of sit with me in that classroom and talk through the theories that are there about the empty tomb and what objection would be there for that evidence. The first one, got your pen? first one I invite you to fill in is called the swoon theory. I had never heard of the swoon theory. The swoon theory. Now, here's the swoon theory. Basically, the swoon theory is that Jesus really didn't die on the cross. That really what he did was he, he went out of consciousness. He went into like a semi-coma type state. And when, when they thought he was dead, the truth of the matter was he was actually not dead. What they actually did was take a semi-comatose body, place it in a tomb, and then three days later when he was revived and he kind of came out of the coma, when he came to his disciples and he presented himself, then their assumption was that he had been resurrected when the truth of the matter was it was just a semi-coma-like state. He was just, he fell unconscious and he had been in the tomb then. Now think about that theory for just a minute, that objection to the evidence of an empty tomb. It would mean for him that he survived with no problem the the excruciating beating that they put upon him, that he was put on a cross, and even with all the the blood loss of a crucifixion, he lived, 
It would mean that he was stabbed in the side with a spear in front of all those people and that that didn't kill him either. It would mean that they took him off the cross after pronouncing him dead, put him in a tomb, wrapped his body in linen, and put somewhere around 30 to 40 pounds of spices on top of him, that after three days, those spices would have made that, that, uh, that binding on top of him much more like a mummy. It would mean that he survived three days in an empty tomb with no food, no water, in that coma-like state, and it would mean that he was able to then come back to life, unwrap himself, overpower the Roman guards, and then go to his followers and say, I'm alive. Questions? Uh, to me, the swoon theory sounds a little bit crazy, uh, like it's not very, a very good objection to the empty tomb. Here's another one. You've heard of this one. I know you've heard of this one. It's called the stolen body theory. The stolen body theory is simply this, that Jesus' body was stolen. As a matter of fact, that is even referenced in the Scriptures in Matthew chapter 28. Let me read it to you, and uh, we'll put it up on the screen as well. Matthew chapter 28, uh, beginning in verse 12. The Bible says, When the chief priests had met with the elders and they devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole Him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money, and they did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. You've heard of the stolen body theory, right? It's right there in Scripture. Now, what's interesting about the, interesting about the stolen body theory, you might want to just write in the side of your notes there, there are only three possibilities for who stole the body of Jesus. The first two are simply this. It was either the Roman government or their officials, the Roman officials, or it was the, the Jewish authorities, right? Now, interestingly enough, those two folks, don't, neither of them have any motive at all. If the Romans and the Jews wanted to, to, to present the body of Jesus, it would make more sense for him to be alive and to have the body of Jesus. Why would they go steal the body? They have no motive for a, a, a person that people are calling Messiah to not have a body anymore, right? It makes little sense. And if you saw the movie, maybe you even remember, remember this part where they were talking about that plan that is referenced in Scripture. Gone. The Nazarene. Of course, the Nazarene. His tomb is stone empty. Who brought this news? The guards? Your guards are missing. Some simpleton reported it. Who did you put on the detail? I want them found and lashed to death, preferably. Let me investigate. Well, that will be helpful before Caiaphas and his pack of raving Jews show up here. Too late. Tribune. Shall we dispense with lies? The guards have told me. They came to you? Seeking sanctuary. I know the penalty for sleeping on duty. What happened? Exactly as I had predicted. The heretic's disciples came in the night and stole the body. Already they are proclaiming him risen from death. Will the people believe it? The weak will. Others want to. So we must announce the theft. Will they believe you? I'll believe the guards if you don't kill them first. Endless. Proclaim it before this blossoms. It's not enough. Without a corpse to prove him dead, we have a potential messiah. I want no doubt. Tiberius cannot arrive to unrest. We must find a body. 
You know, if the Romans and the Jews had taken the body of Jesus, certainly it would make sense for them to then present that body as a fact that he was dead, truly dead. By the way, that movie, Risen, if you've not seen it yet, I encourage you to go to the box office this week. Watch that movie and support Christian films here in America. I said there were three possibilities for the stolen body. There were the the Roman officials, there were the Jewish authorities, but the third one would be the followers of Jesus, right? The followers of Jesus. Maybe they took the body. Maybe they stole the body. But we have to ask the question again of motive. What is their motive to take the body? Now, I want you to grasp for a minute that if you really look at this, it makes no sense as well. They truly have no motive. If they take the body and they say they have a resurrected Messiah, from their forward, their lives are going to look basically like this. They're going to be wanderers. They're going to be penniless evangelists. They're going to be beaten. They're going to be imprisoned and jailed. And many of these very followers will die because of what they proclaim is a resurrected Messiah. As a matter of fact, six of the 11 will be crucified just like Jesus was. I think most of us agree you don't die for a lie. You don't come up with a lie and then say, I'm going to die on that, on that stick, right? The truth of the matter is, there was no motive for a stolen body. Not by the Romans, not by the Jews, not even by the followers of Jesus. We'll talk more about them and the price they paid later on. So here's another one. Write this one down. Another objection to the evidence of, a, of an empty tomb. It's called the hallucination theory. And here it simply is this, that that followers of Jesus all hallucinated together, what they really saw was some kind of image in their imagination. They, they together imagined and hallucinated that Jesus came back to life. Now, what's interesting about this objection is it doesn't make a lot of sense because first and foremost, hallucinations do not happen in groups, all right? Now, does that make sense? I mean, if I were to say to you guys, hey, look, standing over there by the baptismal font, there's Nancy Reagan, you know, who was buried this week, right? By, by the way, do you see her? She's alive. You would all look at me like, yeah, and you're, the, you're going to the loony bin, right? It doesn't happen in large groups like that. The hallucinations do not happen as a group event. But more than that, interestingly enough, we read from the biblical account, the followers of Jesus were not expecting Jesus to come back to life. Even though he had said it a couple of times, they didn't expect it. When they saw Jesus die, they knew what you know. You know that when people die, they, they die, right? And their life is over. They were not expecting it. They were fearful. They were doubters. They, they did not know. And, and here's another piece of that whole thing. When Jesus came back, and the Bible says he appeared to more than 500 people, even at just one moment, all together, when Jesus came back, he didn't just appear to believers. He actually appeared to unbelievers. Now, can you imagine unbelievers Joining believers in their hallucinatory event doesn't make a lot of sense, does it, right? But it's still one of the theories that people have tried to argue against the evidence of an empty tomb. Write this one down, the last one that's, by the way, every one of the the arguments towards an empty tomb will always come back down to one of these four, and it's called the wrong tomb theory, the wrong tomb. And that is that when the followers of Jesus went to go find the body, they actually went to the wrong tomb. They, they, They forgot what tomb it was, they went to the wrong one, and it was empty, This doesn't make a lot of sense either, right? Because this event of the crucifixion was no small event, and this was no small personality. When when this crucifixion happened, it was major, and this would have been a major tomb. So what's interesting also about this objection to the empty tomb is if there is a wrong tomb, there is certainly also a right tomb, 
right? And they would have been able to locate the right tomb and then find a dead body in that place. The evidence of the resurrection, I think, starts with an empty tomb. We, what are you left with? You're left with a, a, a story about a ton of people visually witnessing a resurrected living person who came out of a tomb. You're left with radically changed disciples who were fearful and doubtful and even fleeing at one moment who are radically changed because they meet a risen Savior and they end up changing the world. They hold to their claim even in spite of the greatest of persecution and the greatest of pain and the greatest of death. The evidence of the empty tomb. Let's go to another one. I think another thing that Sir Lionel Lucku would look at would be the, the, the next piece of evidence, which is the fulfilled prophecies. The Old Testament spoke of a Messiah that was to come that would be resurrected, that would bear the sin of the world. And so they would look at those accounts, those prophetic accounts, and they would say, I wonder if this really lines up with who Jesus was, and why don't you look at the story with me together? We'll not go through them fast, but I, I, I want to just go with them one by one so you can... I, there are more than 300 Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. I've picked out 20 for you. And by the way, before I read just 20 of the more than 300 prophecies, which I believe you could fully account for evidence, let me just read one word that Jesus said. In John 10, Jesus said, I am God's son. I like what C.S. Lewis said. <laughs> there he is right there, right? Jesus is saying, I am God's son. You've got to come up with three things about Jesus right out of the gate. Jesus is either a liar, and he, he knows the truth, but he's not telling the truth. He's either, either a liar, liar, or he's a lunatic. He's a madman, because why would you lead so many people astray, and you would tell them, you're God's son, you're the Messiah. You're either a liar, you're a lunatic, or C.S. Lewis said, you're Lord. He can only be one of those three things. Jesus said, I am God's son, and then notice this. I like this. Have you ever picked up on this? He said, do not believe in me unless I do the works of my Father. He says, basically, look at the evidence of my life. Don't believe that I'm God's son unless you can see that I'm doing the work of my Father. Jesus says, check the evidence of the Old Testament prophecies. Check the evidence of the fruit of my ministry. Balance it next to my life. Look at my own evidence. And you can either believe for yourself or not. I am God's son. Don't believe it if you don't see the fruit, if you don't see the evidence. But check it for yourself. Look at these prophecies with me real quickly. I'll just go through a few of them. That he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. That he would be betrayed by a friend. That he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, the prophet Zechariah spoke. And that those pieces of silver would be thrown back into the temple. That he would be forsaken by his disciples. That he would be accused by false witnesses. That he would remain silent before his accusers that he would be wounded and bruised, that he would be whipped and spat upon, that he would be mocked, that his hands and his feet would be pierced. This is interesting because in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, when that was spoken of, there was no such thing at that time as crucifixion. It had not even been invented yet. That his hands and feet would be pierced, that he would be crucified with thieves, that his clothes would be divided and lots cast for them, that he would be offered gall and vinegar to drink. The exact words of his death cry are predicted in Psalm chapter 22. Not one of his bones would be broken. 
His side would be pierced, darkness would fall, he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, he would be resurrected from the dead. I think any lawyer worth their salt would have to go back and look at these words that were spoken literally, some of them a thousand or more years before Jesus ever arrived, and say, hmm, what do we make of that? Here's another piece of evidence. Write this one down real quickly. It's the evidence of the eyewitness accounts. That there were people, and you have to to see, are they valid? Are these valid stories about Jesus? Are they true? That there were people who said they saw Jesus back alive after he'd been killed. The Bible says this in Acts 1-3. After his suffering, by the way, uh, Luke wrote the book of Acts. Luke is a physician. Luke is a very learned man, and Luke had never met Jesus, all right? Luke went around interviewing people about Jesus' life in order to write his gospel. So watch what he writes in the book of Acts. After his suffering, he presented himself to them, and he gave, if you got your pen, underline these three words, many convincing proofs that he was alive. That, that word in the Greek is actually one Greek word that we translate many convincing proofs, and it's actually a legal term used in court. It is literally the word for court-ordered evidence, many convincing proofs that he was alive. Look at what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to, our script, to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. You might want to underline that phrase. Most of whom are are still living. It's almost like Paul is saying, listen, if you, wanna, if you want proof for yourself, just go ask them. They're still around. They can tell you for themselves that they actually met the risen Jesus, that they actually experienced him back alive, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, that's Paul, as the one abnormally born. Paul experienced the voice of Jesus on a road to Damascus. You know, if you pick up the Bible, there are six independent testimonies, three of them, people who actually were the disciples of Jesus, six independent testimonies of the resurrection, and six independent testimonies about how Jesus met with people after he came out of the tomb. I think, again, you have to ask yourself about these eyewitnesses. Are they lying? Or are they mad? Are they just coming up with their own crazy thoughts? Or are they actually people who ended up changing the world? Did they cause good to happen in the world because of who they were? And if you ask those three questions, you have to put these eyewitnesses into one of those three buckets. They're either liars, they're either mad men, or they are people who actually changed the world for good. Will you trust them? Will you say that they are valid eyewitnesses and what they said was true? Look at this fourth one. Fourth evidence of the, uh, of the resurrection. And this is probably the, beyond maybe the empty tomb, the largest one of all. Changed lives. Changed lives. And by the way, instead of running on, let's start with the most important. Let's talk about the disciples. The, the, write that down. The first evidence for changed lives was the disciples. 
I mean, these guys, you remember what happened, right? When Jesus was arrested, even before the crucifixion, what did they do? They hauled tail, right? They, they ran. They fled because they were afraid. That's who they are. That's what they are. They, when they saw Jesus get arrested, they wanted as far as they could away from this whole scene, right? Then not only that, not only did they, they, they flee, but the Bible says when Jesus actually came back and appeared to them, what was the first word that was spoken about them? They were afraid. They were afraid. That, matter of fact, some passages of Scripture say they thought he was a ghost. They were afraid. The first thing out of their, out of their own gut, the same fear that caused them to flee, now he's in their presence, and they're still afraid that, that a ghost has appeared to them. And then what, what do we see happen? Evidently, these guys' lives were changed so much because Jesus came back to life that they literally become different people than they were at the core of who they are. I mean, at first they were defeated. I mean, remember Peter, not even knowing what to do, said, I'm going to go back and fish. He, did, he was going back to do the only thing he knew what to do, right? They were so defeated. And then they experienced a risen Christ, and there's a change. They become dynamic. They become dynamic people that, that draw crowds of thousands upon thousands of people. Does that happen in a person's life like that, that kind of change in just a few days? I mean, they were crushed in the moment of seeing Jesus die, and then just a little while later, they're the most confident people on the planet. They're going around going, he's alive, he's alive. They were crushed, and now they're confident. Just a few hours earlier, they're throwing a pity party for themselves, right? Oh, woe for us. The Bible says they're in a locked room. They're scared to death. They're throwing a pity party, and they, just a few hours later, become world changers. When you talk about lives changed, you've got to start with the people who knew Jesus best because the Bible says Jesus appeared to them and they were changed because of the resurrection, fundamentally and at the core of who they are, and they became world changers. The next evidence, I guess, of lives changed is all the people that have lived and professed faith in Christ and faith in the resurrection across time since that moment. We're, we're living here, you know, 2,000 years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And I want you just to think about all the people across all that time who have examined the evidence of the resurrection, and they've come to believe in the resurrection, and they have said their life was changed for the better because, watch this, not just that they believed that Jesus was alive, but here's what they say. They say he's not just alive somewhere out there. They say he's alive in them. They say they have a walking, talking, living relationship where he guides them, he counsels them, he, he's with them as they journey. Now, not only that, write this one down because here's a few lives changed. Right now on this planet, 2.2 billion people. This past week, I learned that there are only three, three, 350 million people in the United States of America. Let that grasp on it for a minute. 350 million. If everybody in America was a Christian, we'd only be a small portion of that number there. 2.2 billion people across the planet today say that they have been radically changed by a resurrected Jesus. Here's one. And I just had to throw this one out there. Scholars and historians. Scholars and historians who are much brighter and smarter than me who have actually studied this stuff, and they've come to a conclusion on their own. Can I just mention a few of them to you? Because I think there's a few that are, are kind of the cream of the crop when it comes to scholars and historians that are noteworthy. 
Let me start off with this guy on the left, on your left, right? Simon Greenleaf. Simon Greenleaf was the guy who basically started the Harvard Law School. There would be no Harvard Law School if it wasn't for Simon Greenleaf. Simon Greenleaf was challenged uh, by others, just like Sir Lionel Luku, to try to disprove the resurrection story. He was not an agnostic, he was an atheist. He said there is no God. And he began to try to disprove the guy who started the Harvard Law School, Christianity. After he had looked at all the evidence, let me read a real quick quote to you that Simon Greenleaf said. He said this, after he studied, after he studied the evidence, he gave his life to Christ, and then to his colleagues, he gave these words. All that Christianity asks of people is that they would be consistent with themselves, that they would treat evidences as evidence. And that they would try to judge its witnesses. The result would be an undoubting conviction of their integrity, their ability, and truth. The guy who started Harvard Law School was an atheist, studied the resurrection, and in the process became a Christian. Here's another one. Edmund Bennett. Edmund Bennett was influenced somewhat by Simon Greenleaf. He actually was the dean of the law school at Boston University. He was an agnostic. He didn't know. He said he didn't know. And then he studied, and he did know after he looked at the evidence. The dean of the law school at Boston University gave his life to Jesus when he began to study it. Frank Morrison, journalist and lawyer, wrote, Who Moved My Stone? Tried to go out and disprove Christianity. Great book, by the way. Tried to go out and disprove Christianity in the process became a Christian. There's another guy, by the way, I'm not going to put his picture up there, Lee Strobel. Have you heard of Lee Strobel? A guy who was a writer for the Chicago Tribune, a devout atheist, tried to disprove Christianity, and in the process became a Christian. He wrote The Case for Christ. If you've never read The Case for Christ, strong book about how the evidence changed him. Here's another one, Josh McDowell. Maybe you know this guy. Josh McDowell was an agnostic, young apprentice as a lawyer. And he tried to disprove Christianity as a lawyer and in the process became a Christian and is now one of the leading defenders of the faith around our nation. He wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Phenomenal book. I have several of his books on my shelf because these guys have really studied. I mean, they have really studied all the evidence and all the objections and in the process became believers because they were atheists or agnostics in the process. Here's another one, and I want to lift him out. He's an older guy, John Singleton Copley. John Singleton Copley was one of the greatest legal minds in the history of England. He was three times Lord Chancellor over England. He one time uh, said this after he tried to disprove Christianity and became a Christian. He said, I know what evidence is. I'm a lawyer. He said, I know what evidence is. I'm a lawyer. If you really examine the evidence, you will find that it's never broken down even to this day. I wonder what you think. I can tell you, I was already a Christian. I was 22 years old sitting in a Bible class, systematic theology. We had a lot to talk about. There's a lot more to come in all of our studies about God, right? 
But I remember sitting there and thinking to myself, hmm, an empty tomb, fulfilled prophecies, eyewitnesses' accounts of what I consider not to be lunatics or madmen or liars, but actually be people who ended up changing the world for good. And there are all these other people who are, who are so smart. And in their attempt to disprove Christianity, they met the risen Savior. They became Christ followers. For me that day, as a person who was already trusting in the resurrection, it was an affirmation of my faith. It was a day that I said, thank you, Jesus, for what you did in that empty tomb, what you did in your plan to fulfill those prophecies, what you did when you showed yourselves to those eyewitnesses, and what you're still doing today in changing lives. But the greatest question is not for the Christian, I don't think. The greatest question is for the person who would say, I'm an atheist, or I'm an agnostic, or I'm yet still unconvinced. What say you about the evidence? The Bible says this in John chapter 8, verse 32. These are Jesus' words. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, the truth of the resurrection, I'll say it one more time. If, if not for the resurrection, all Christianity hangs on it. The truth of the resurrection can set you free. Jesus died for you. And not only that, he came back to life. If you could really trust that, if you could lean on that, if you could look at the evidence and say, okay, yes, I believe, here's what would happen. You'd understand now you have a real reason to live. You'd understand also that you have a Savior who loves you, who is far better than you, far more holy than you, but willing to die for you. And I love this one. You'll understand that when you take your last breath on this planet, it's not your last moment of living. That you'll be with him. Here's the cool idea. Follow me. That not only would he be resurrected, but he would resurrect you. That he would bring you back to life. The Bible promises not only a bodily resurrection of Jesus, but did you know it promises a bodily resurrection for you? It says when this old body breaks down, you take your last breath. If you believe, remember, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes, if you believe, you can be resurrected too. You'll be given a new body, a body that doesn't grow old anymore, a body that doesn't have pains, a body that doesn't work quite right. Let me speak that over our hearing, folks. You will hear perfectly. This is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it all comes down to this. What say you? What say you to the evidence? Would you bow your heads with me? If you're a person who has struggled with this whole thing called faith, if you're a person who's really struggled whether Jesus was really the Messiah, I just would like to ask you for a minute, what have you been feeling in the last few minutes? What have you been thinking in the last few minutes? I know how God works. God has a way of coming and whispering over us. God has a way of coming and nudging at our hearts. God has a way, however you want to term it, of knocking at our heart's door and saying, I've searched for you. I have loved you. I've been wooing you your whole life. I just want you to love me back. 
And you know, for anybody who's having a struggle with issues of faith, that's really all it is. It's just turning, turning around and realizing that, that God has been loving you your whole life and saying, I love you back. That's why even children can do it. They can say, God, I love you. And so today, if you've never said that, or maybe if you have, you just want to say it again. I want a prayer prayer, and I want to invite you to pray it with me. Pray this with me, if you will. God, I thank you for who you are, and I thank you that you love me so perfectly. Today, I'm here. I'm here, and I've heard the evidence one more time of your great love for me and how how you not only promised that you'd come back to life, but you actually did it. And so today, the best I know how, I just want to say to you, God, I believe. I believe. And I receive. I not only believe, but I receive all the promises that are on the cross and all the promises of the tomb. I want to receive eternal life for myself today. I ask you to wash away my sins, and today I receive that you're going to one day resurrect me And that when I breathe my last on this planet, God, it won't be my last living moment because I will be immediately in your presence. I receive that today. I receive for my own life, your life, you living in me. The best I know how today, I just open up my heart door. And I just say, come on in, live inside of me. It's not the best place. It's a dirty old place. But I invite you to come inside and live inside of me and And along the way, maybe you'd help me clean up some rooms. and That's not the most important thing. I just want you to be with me. Live inside me, Jesus, so that I can really live on purpose and I can do your work in this world and that one day I might see you face to face like those disciples that I read about. I want to see you face to face. I want to see you face to face one day. Thank you for life. Thank you for love. I love you. I love you, Jesus. I love you. Amen. Hey, can I just pause for a moment and say that we've oftentimes prayed that kind of prayer here at Harvest Point, and for some folks it was their very first time. It was their moment to open their heart store and say, Jesus, come inside of me. And I just want to say, if, if you need help knowing that next step, we're here for you, okay? Maybe you, we've had folks before say, I don't even have a Bible. Guess what? Let us give you your first Bible, okay? We'd love to give you your very first Bible. If you opened up your heart door today, just, just let me know. And we want to help you walk this journey called the Christian life, right? The Christ follower life. We're here for you. I'm so glad you're here with us. In the next few minutes, we're going to worship through our, through our tithes and offerings. Keep your eyes open. Let's do an eyes open prayer, if you will, okay? God, in the next few minutes, as we give back to you of our tithes and offerings, take them and multiply them for the kingdom of God. Send them way beyond our hands, God, into lives that are far beyond even Henry County and, and, and Jackson and Griffin. Send them beyond us, God, and do the work of expanding your kingdom on planet Earth. And the next few minutes, God, as we baptize this young man, we pray that this would also be our offering to do today to you, that you would receive this life, a life anew to you. This is our prayer, Jesus, and in your name we pray. Amen.